Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, I'm Mark Kenny, and this is Democracy Sausage, which comes to you weekly from the Australian National University. Hamish MacDonald, you hear him on the ABC, you see him on the ABC indeed, and on uh, programs like The Project on Channel 10, he's been on Q&A of course, and countless other things, he's a very busy man. Now he has a new series available as a podcast called Take Me to Your Leader, I think it's also going to be playing on Radio National. And I'm delighted to say he's with me now on this podcast, Dictatorship Sausage. Actually, that's not right. It's <laughs> Democracy Sausage. Hamish McDonald, uh, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thank you for having me. I, you joke about it, but I, I suspect the um, the distance between democracy and dictatorship is probably narrower than what we all might imagine. And it's sort of something that keeps coming up in a lot of these conversations about democracies that, that slide intermittently uh, towards something that doesn't feel quite so democratic. It's a very good point, isn't it? Because it's one of those things where, um, as a number of your uh, the experts you talk to uh, through this series kind of hint at this or sometimes explicitly refer to it, this sense that um, some of the, the kind of changes that occur, uh, as you call them, the sort of slides, they're not necessarily seen contemporaneously as leading on that path to the surrender of democratic rights and the, and the and the creation of an authoritarian state of strong men and so forth, but you can look back, you can do the sort of uh, um, the, the post mortem on it on democracy and see the ways in which those things occurred, and and that that is the sort of thing about which we need to be hyper aware. The series you say um, gets sort of under the skin of some of these most prickly authoritarians. They're not all authoritarians that you that. You you uh, talk about in the series, but so who, let, let's start off with the basics. Who have you got on the series that you sort of uh, uh, focus on, and and perhaps tell us why you chose them? Well, the big and obvious ones like Xi Jinping and Putin, uh, they just dominate so much of our news today. And I, I suppose, if, from a from a news broadcaster point of view, I think a lot of my colleagues share this frustration as well. You can tend to get fairly. Um, simplified versions of these leaders when you talk about them in the in the kind of headline context so much so that they almost become caricatures and i think some of these leaders feed that themselves i think putin certainly with his his bare-chested horseback riding and his fishing and his wrestling and all the rest of it i think they tend to feed it a little bit because they want a narrative and they want to project a certain type of image but 
as you know, and you've covered politics up close for so long, Mark, so much about a leader and whether they're a leader that's at the top or aspiring, so much about what they do in terms of decision-making and principle is based on their backstory. And so what I wanted to do with this series was kind of go beyond the headlines and the caricature version of these leaders and basically unpack who they are. What's their cultural context? What's their personal history? What are the factors that have led them to power? What's the turning point? It seems to me that in most of these cases, there's been some pivotal moment in their life story that set them on a particular course towards leadership um, and at least galvanize their, their views or their ambitions. And uh, and then what are they doing with that power? And we all know that we kind of live in these slightly strange geopolitical times where, where the tectonic plates do feel like they're shifting, perhaps more so than, than at some other times, in certainly in my lifetime. Um, so what's the, what's the power of the individual in that? To what extent are these leaders actually shaping those events? That's basically what I wanted to get at. Beyond those two, Netanyahu's made a comeback, so we're doing him. Modi in India, who's just this unbelievably fascinating character, Georgia Maloney, the first female PM of Italy. Uh, we're doing Rishi Sunak in the UK. Just an, like a uh, one of the most fascinating, I think, conversations that we've had in this whole series was about that combination of race and class and colonialism in Britain and how that sort of seems to have culminated in in one moment politically. Uh, and then, of course, Sanna Marin, the world's youngest prime minister who leads Finland and is making these huge decisions to take Finland into NATO. So uh, a leader of, of actually great consequence, it turns out. Yes, absolutely. And that, and that proves the, the point I was making and the correction I made of myself there. These aren't all strong men, of course, or strong, or even authoritarians. In the case of uh, a couple that you listed there toward the end, uh, Rishi Sunak in the UK, and he's still a new prime minister and those interesting intersections of, of race and, and political ideology and so forth. Fascinating there and, and as you say, with Santa Maran. But um, just mentioning Putin and you, you talked about you know his, um, you know the sort of caricature aspects of it. I mean, he's really been playing into that even more recently than the uh, the, the the sort of bare-chested hunting uh, videos and and the like. We've uh, <laughs> seen him with those extraordinary scenes where he's you know entertaining other leaders or leaders, uh, uh, min- his own ministers in massive rooms, sitting at the. <laughs> Sitting at comically long tables, you know, with the other person sort of, you know, twenty meters away to the other end, it just seems it does seem like like it's been, um, you know, like like it's a comedy really, uh, it's a very serious matters, but uh, it makes for the caricature, caricature that's for sure. And I, I think his background as a KJB agent. Remember, he was a recruitment officer in East Germany. I think so much of his backstory, well before politics does at least explain some of his behaviours and the way he can kind of manipulate an image or create and craft a narrative, even project a particular kind of narrative. It's it's fascinating talking to people that knew him or met him back during those times. You know, the overwhelming description really is of this grey man, someone that didn't stand out, someone that didn't project toughness or machismo or great ambition for for world domination. Um, You know, one of the people that we meet in the podcast, and I should make the point that by and large in this series, we talk to people that know them, have worked with them, have up close and 
personal experiences with them. There are some experts and people that kind of offer more of the geopolitical perspective on things, but but by and large, we've tried to to um, engage in a conversation about who these people actually are beyond just the politics. And there's a guy, Fran Sadelmeyer, who was working um, in in the security business. Uh, from Germany, living in St. Petersburg in the in the 90s when Putin was there, when he was the deputy mayor, and Putin loved German food because of his time as a KGB officer in, in East Germany. And these guys struck up a relationship because of Putin's role uh, in the in the city council, um, but they would have these monthly dinners where they'd eat, they'd cook German food and drink German beer together, and then occasionally there'd be these sort of German beer hall nights that would be hosted by the the German community and invite all the local officials along. And Putin would turn up, and the story that Franz Edelmeier tells is of Putin being given a, a sort of shot glass of vodka at the start of the night, walking around the room and toasting everyone there for the whole night but at no point ever taking a sip of this vodka. <laughs> that is strong man stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly some discipline. Yeah, yeah, smart, yeah. Didn't he used to be a taxi driver at one stage? I remember reading that. Uh, there's, uh, part of the challenge actually with this has been to dissect the, the, the myth from the, the reality and part of the, I think, the complexity of Putin's story is that it's actually unclear when he ever left the KGB. Right, you know, th- there is this theory, right, that uh, so Anatoly Sobchak, who was this uh, quite big political figure um, in in the Soviet Union at the time, was the mayor of Saint Petersburg, was seen as a possible future leader, um, was also perceived to be slightly more Western in his in his outlook. That it's possible that the KGB wanted someone there close to him that was essentially keeping tabs on him um, because there was this unbelievable trajectory that Putin was on. He sort of went from deputy mayor of St. Petersburg to suddenly being nominated as prime minister and then and then being tapped to replace Yeltsin as president. It was a it, Even today, I think it's difficult to see how that all um, unfolded in the way that it did. Yes. Now, I haven't listened to all of the episodes myself. I've listened to three of them, uh, um, Xi Jinping, uh, particularly uh, MBS, um, Mohammed bin Salman, bin Salman and, um, uh, and the one about Georgia, Georgia, Georgia Maloney. Maloney. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they are the three that are on the, on the website at the moment. And uh, really interesting, the, the people you've got there. I thought we might go through and just talk a bit more about uh, – some of those uh, the details that come out in those episodes, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Xi Jinping, in particular, uh, you know, such a dominant figure. He's now sitting atop what is widely described as a superpower, the 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 rival in geostrategic terms to the U.S. Um, and he's been through an interesting trajectory, uh, at least in terms of his reputation, but I think also in terms of his style of leadership. Um, I've uh, I remember being quite close to him uh, in the Great Hall of the People uh, when I travelled there with uh, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, Tony Abbott, uh, back in 2014. There was uh, some premiers uh, on that delegation as well. Uh, we're all standing around in a, in a in a fairly small area. I could hear the conversation, um, and and uh, Xi Jinping at that stage, at least, and later in that same year, he addressed the uh, joint sitting of the Australian Parliament. And at that stage, at least, there was 
great hope that he was a liberaliser, that he was very fond of Australia, a point he made uh, to the delegation a number of times. He talked about various places in Australia that he'd visited and wanted to visit, big, big fan of Tasmania. Um, <laughs> and there was there's a real sort of sense that, um, the, you know, that he was an economic liberal in some ways um, and that uh, this was part of that whole narrative that had been burbling along for a while that, you know, with trade came sort of democracy came um, prosperity and political sophistication and 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 diversity and all of the things that I suppose we would like to think uh, about ourselves we were starting or hoping to see uh, in China but it hasn't really played out that way mm. and I, I suppose that's what this particular moment in our history uh, is throwing up as a I guess a reality check on, on that particular worldview and I think it's as true in Europe as it is in this part of the world I think you know there are leaders and there are nations that have taken the view that if you if you build up enough trade and and enough um, interdependency with countries like China and Russia that you will as it were bring them in from the periphery politically that you'll engage them with your both your systems of commerce but also your systems of law and uh, and political process and that's not to say you necessarily turn them into democracies although I suspect there's some political figures in the West that would have liked that or might at one time have thought that was possible that you at the very least bring them into an international rules-based order uh, and you and you get buy-in on the sort of key geopolitical matters that offer you all um, security and you hope in turn prosperity and I think I think certainly China is challenging that today. Russia very clearly is with its war in Ukraine. But I, 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 I think if that was the prevailing or the conventional wisdom 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, certainly um, at the back end or after the end of the, the Cold War, I, I think um, a lot of those assumptions have disappeared. And I, I think it is figures like Xi and Putin that, are proving so such a challenge to that in part because of the way they hold and wield power domestically in their own uh, nations, but the way in which they are using their nations and the relative power of those nations to to threaten uh, or, or at least undermine the kind of dominant um, powers globally, that being the United States and a. Uh, what many other countries see as a Western-dominated um, world order, even if we do call it an international rules-based system, there are many parts of the world that see that as being a Western-dominated, controlled, owned, operated, copyrighted system um, that they seek to to challenge. And that's been uh, quite a growing narrative, actually, in these countries, particularly the two you just mentioned, and from leaders like Putin, very explicitly in his case, uh, and from China. Uh, I wonder, is there a parallel there that um, that in a way they, they emerged as young leaders with a reputation for liberalisation, at least in some aspects, um, and and that their leadership then matures into a kind of a more uh, sort of revisionist um, uh, authoritarian streak, which we've seen in both cases. Is that is that is that a fair observation? Um, I, I think it's not unfair. I don't know that you could necessarily use the same. Uh, 
description or rationale for both. I think it's pretty clear that Putin was on quite a different trajectory at one point. You know, think back to 9-11, right, and the, and the bromance with George W. Bush. You know, remember he went to the States and they, you know, were wearing the cowboy hats and, yes. you know, saying, this is, you know, this is a leader I can do business with. Putin saw uh, a shared opportunity in the aftermath of 9-11 to build uh, some kind of alliance with with the United States. Um, he saw a common enemy in Islamic terrorism because uh, in the, you know, in the wake of the Soviet Union, Russia itself faced, uh, you know, what it would describe as a, as a war on terror um, as far as sort of insurgent um, Islamist groups in the Caucasus were concerned. Um, and and so they, there was this desire to build a more common future. I don't think that was uh, false. I don't think there's anything to suggest that Putin didn't really believe that at the time. Um, but certainly things have changed. And certainly uh, things like the Georgia conflict in 2008 was a pretty critical turning point, um, you know, when when there was this sort of two-week hot war that then tra- you know dragged on for for somewhat longer between Russia and, and Georgia um, in, in, largely in the north of, of that country um, and then of course the sort of expansion of NATO uh, we can you know I don't think anyone is going to solve the argument that that exists between the West and and Russia on that but of course the Russian line on it the la- Russian take on NATO's expansion is that this is a threat to to Russia and and it's what they would call a sphere sphere of influence. Now, mm. um, you know, which is which is it, typical Cold War thinking, actually. But uh, but but you know, other realists point out that all great powers uh, guard their perimeters, and that uh, it's just whether you like it or not, it's very standard sort of rational behaviour of great powers to not have their uh, their great power competitors on their borders, and that's I, the way think- they were seeing that discussion. Absolutely. And you can argue, you know, I've spent loads of time in Ukraine over the years with the various different, you know, revolutions and uprisings that have occurred there. And I think Ukrainians do make the point and, and Western officials do make the point, you know, the Ukrainian people have decided time and time again that they want to support more Western-leaning, European-centric leaders. And uh, there have been so many instances over the last 15, 20 years where Russia has sought to undermine those choices. And so it then comes down to a question of, well, what, what rights do a, does a sovereign nation have to determine its own future, regardless of where it sits uh, geographically? Geographically, yeah. You know, should Ukraine be able to choose for itself whether it leans towards the West or towards the East? Should it be able to choose whether it wants to be closer to the European Union and uphold democratic values uh, if it if it prefers to to do so? Should it have the right to join NATO if it if it so chooses and if NATO agrees to that? Now you can sort of argue, and, and some people do. People like Monica Attard, even who who is part of of this series, says, well, you know, Australia didn't like it so much when the Solomon Islands uh, signed a a sort of security pact with with China and we moved pretty quickly to 
uh, assure ourselves that other regional neighbours uh, are on side with us and we'll do all sorts of things like offer them, you know, democracy building funds and we'll offer to assist them with running their elections and we might offer to train their police or uh, improve the the strength of their their military or we might offer to help them do, um, you know, patrols of their, their fishing and maritime spaces. Uh, and so, um, you know, countries do do this. And I suppose the point is that perhaps uh, some countries accept it when their neighbours decide to do other things and respect those decisions. They may not agree with them, but they accept that they have the right to make them. Um, uh, whereas other countries might say, well, we didn't like that, so we're going to invade and, and take part of your country to, as, a, as a sort of warning. Yes, that's such a difficult debate. I've been involved in that and I've had Monica on this podcast as well. And, and I, I think, you know, all of those questions you ask about should, a, should a, a sovereign country have the right to do those things, the answer is yes, 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 all the way through. But then you get to the last one about NATO membership and it becomes an important question about what the costs of NATO membership are for them. And I think NATO itself needed to uh, arguably be much clearer about it because in the end, and this is, I think, a point that often is missed in this discussion, in the end, NATO did not allow over a sustained period of time and and and, and a good deal of discussion about it where Ukraine had made its uh, preferences known, NATO did not decide to allow Ukraine to become a member, uh, notwithstanding George Bush saying so in 2008 and a number of other times. And the reason for that was that uh, it was regarded as uh, playing into Putin's narrative about NATO encroaching on its eastern border and so forth, um, its western border. And I suppose it goes to the question of who and how narratives are created, but certainly today the narrative around the sort of raison d'etre for NATO is much clearer. Even if, you know, it was never uh, outwardly said to be an anti-Russian alliance, um, Russia has given it a reason for being in a way that I think it is it has struggled to define at mm. least for the past sort of 15 20 20 years all of those questions about uh, funding of uh, national militaries in Europe have been dealt with Germany uh, under you know a socialist chancellor um, Olaf Scholz has made all of the decisions that Merkel, had, uh, you know, a, a a conservative chancellor of Germany, struggled to make around defence funding, around energy supplies. Uh, you know, just think about how, you know, we think in Australia our our politics is is shifting so rapidly because of the rise of China and you know political changes in America that make us question the strength of our our sort of security arrangements. Just imagine what it's like being a German voter, and you you know you've just elected in a a new um, uh, sort of left leaning SPD chancellor in coalition with the Greens, uh, and and hang on a minute, they're upping defence spending, they're um, pulling out of gas supplies arrangements with with Russia. Um, they're reviewing decisions about nuclear power that were taken in the wake of Fukushima um, and they're sort of all in on NATO and um, we might give tanks and all sorts of other things to Ukraine to help them fight the Russians. I mean, it's a radical, radical redesign of, of the domestic um, and the sort of near international sphere of Germany. Yes, well done, Vladimir. You've united your enemies in a way that uh, no one else has succeeded in doing. They certainly seemed incapable of doing it themselves for a long time. 
Um, let's take a quick break there and be back in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Sausage, of course, with me, Mark Kenny, and I'm talking with Hamish MacDonald, a famous media journalist. You see him on all kinds of different platforms, and he has a podcast out called Take Me to Your Leader, which gets under the skin of a whole number of leaders, gets into the background, what took them to their places of power and so forth. We were talking about a fair bit about Russia, but also China before the break. We'll just continue on with China for a moment, because I just want to get from you, Hamish, a sense of of, of what you learned in, in the discussion. You had a, a particularly interesting panel, I thought, uh, that you were speaking to uh, who could talk to you about um, Xi Jinping's story, his personal story, which was one of enormous privilege to begin with and then being sort of exiled to the country and living in a cave, supposedly, um, and and how he embraced the party after that when a lot of other people who'd been through that same uh, abusive uh, uh, process uh, couldn't wait to get out of China. He, he went the other way. Um, and he's been a true believer ever since and uh, gravitates all the way to the top. Yeah, and it strikes me actually that it could so easily have gone a different way. You know, that having had that experience initially as a princeling and then being kind of ejected from, uh, you know, society as it were and physically removed and put out in the country. And, this is part of the cultural uh, revolution, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. So his father who'd been, you know, had a senior position in the Communist Party was fated. The family was privileged. You know, they had all of the all of the trappings, um, suddenly found themselves on the outer and he he – is essentially doing hard labour. And, yes, there is this story about him living in a cave. I think to some degree a version of that is probably true. Um, I don't think it was sort of the Tora Bora Mountains for 25 <laughs> years, um, but, but it certainly would have been a difficult experience. But I think what is really quite surprising out of that is that he doesn't rail against the Communist Party. He doesn't rail against the system. He actually holds stronger to his father's version or view of what the Communist Party could and should be and what China might become. And he really then sort of makes it his life's mission to fulfil that. So it actually, um, it, it urges him on rather than sends him in the opposite direction. And I, I think it's fair to say that, and I think the point is made during during the podcast episode, that you know, for many of his contemporaries, the answer would have been, okay, well, I'm going to get out of here. This mm. system doesn't work. It can kind of turn on you. It can turn your life upside down. You don't actually have any agency or control over what happens in your life because the system is sort of, 
is very likely to be, you know, um, upturned at any moment and you, and you might find your life's work being um, destroyed. He he hangs on for dear life and, and turns out to be incredibly successful uh, at manoeuvring within the party. But I think on top of that, you know, the geography of where he was and where he was stationed in his earlier years, you know, in that southeast of the country where, you know, there were those sort of um, early stages of capitalism and um, moves away from it all being, you know, party-controlled organisations and state-owned enterprises into something that, you know, more reflected capitalism. I think the fact that he was in that part of the country, that he was witnessing that firsthand, that he was building his power base in those environments, um, really gave him something to to work with. And, you know, probably unlike Putin, I think he he hasn't probably been quite as all over the place with his view of, of where he wanted to be and, you know, what he wanted to do with China. I think it's probably been a more um, more steady path, if you like. But but it does also make you reflect on, you know, some of the things that China under his rule does to people, whether we're talking about individual Australian academics who end up detained there, one of whom is is on the episode, uh, for sort of asking the wrong questions about democracy, um, or whether you're talking about the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang, or you know um, political campaigners or journalists in in Hong Kong, um, it does make you realise that actually he has a personal history with this kind of thing. He's sort of seen uh, for himself the the power and I suppose the influence that the the state can have on you, um, which in many ways, I think, makes it slightly more terrifying that he's willing to do it. And do you think that has implications for Taiwan? Um, I, I know, I mean, you make the point in in the podcast that um, quite clearly that, you know, he has threatened uh, to, pretty well promised, I believe, to uh, re- reunify Taiwan with the, the mainland. Um, do, do, you sen- do you have a sense that that is imminent or that that is um, a serious thing or is it a rhetorical tool? I mean, without doubt, it's a serious thing simply by virtue of the increased military might of China. I think sort of crystal balling these things in terms of timelines is always fairly fairly hopeless. Um, I think there are military strategists that are probably better placed to make um, forecasts about that sort of thing based on uh, where military hardware is positioned and what sort of exercises are being conducted. but. Without doubt, uh, that stated desire, you know, there's no secret to where China sees or where Beijing sees Taiwan in the the sort of global map. Um, You know, that's not in doubt. China is a rising military power. That's not in doubt. The balance of power globally between the United States and China is shifting. has Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed the lens through which we view this? Yes, I think it has. I think it's demonstrated um, uh, that a that a small nation can withstand a, a great assault from a very large nation. Uh, I think it's reminded us that a um, a citizen population um, has a lot to lose 
um, when it's up against, uh, you know, what it rightly or wrongly de- deems to be an invading power. Um, I think we've been reminded of that over the last year in in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I think we've also seen that the West uh, can get itself together and provide uh, intelligence support, military hardware, um, strategic support. Um, it can back in a leader um, that knows what they're doing. Um, whether this, whether the picture is exactly the same in, in, with, with regards to, to Taiwan, I'm not quite so sure. Um, but but for us in Australia, the consequences obviously are, are, are enormous. Yes, there's certainly been a lot of talk about, a lot of commentary about the way China is reading the circumstances in Ukraine and, and reading indeed the way the West responds to that and and, and taking uh, lessons from that. So, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a fascinating and ominous thing to to consider. Let's quickly uh, have, a, have a chat about a couple of others. Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia, the prince of Saudi Arabia rather than the king. Um, what did you learn uh, about, about him and about Saudi Arabia um, through this discussion that you had? In many ways, this episode on MBS, as he's known, was one of the more revealing. I think, if for nothing else, because you realise the the reach of his power. Mm. As you point out, he's not actually the king; he's the crown prince. He's the son. Uh, they call him Mister Everything in Saudi because he really is in charge of most of the, I suppose, um, machinery of the state of Saudi, and even here in Australia. Saudis that we, and as far away as in the UK, US, Saudis that we wanted to talk to as part of this would sort of agree to come on and then would invariably pull out um, because they're just so scared. Yeah, and you had one of the people that you did have on was prepared to talk but not have his name used. Yeah, so uh, giving him a pseudonym for the purposes mm. of the of the discussion, but even he goes into great detail about the measures that he takes living now in Australia to protect his identity. You know, he says he doesn't have any of his utility bills in his name. His partner and he live with a a German Shepherd. Mm. Um, you know, he talks extensively about the two Saudi girls that were found dead in an apartment in Sydney last year. And he says, look, you know, obviously the, the coronial inquest isn't complete. No one really knows what happened. Um, but certainly within the Saudi community, there is a degree of fear about how and why those two girls ended up dead. Um, and-, and and when we think about them and we think about Jamal Khashoggi um, and we think about a number of the other uh, amazing things that have punctuated his rise, uh, his 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 um, status as Mr. Everything, as you say, the most powerful man there, um, it's, it's extraordinary to think that Saudi Arabia is, as we understand it, a principal sponsor of the FIFA Women's World Cup that Australia and yeah. New Zealand are jointly hosting um, later this year. Yeah, it's such a a, a, a difficult um, thing to get your head around, I suppose. But, uh, you know, as I was talking to Craig Foster the other week on the project, I said to him, would it really be that shocking that FIFA had signed a, a sponsorship deal with Saudi given that they'd given the hosting rights for the World Cup to both Russia and Qatar? It doesn't seem like yeah. such a Such, such an enlightened organisation. Yeah. Well, I mean... You know, clearly if that's sort of where um, their principles lie, it didn't 
strike me as quite so shocking. But clearly, given Saudi's record on gender rights and queer rights, um, sponsoring something like the Women's World Cup um, does seem a rather odd fit. Um, and I think the branding is Visit Saudi. And as as I was saying with Craig Foster, it's sort of Visit Saudi, except for any of you playing here, because probably probably wouldn't really welcome yeah, so many exactly. Yeah. Far too much is made of, of things like, you know, he allowed women to drive and women to dance and so forth as if, you know, this is, um, I mean, yes, look, there are some liberal aspects compared to the arch-conservatism that has governed the country in the past, but um, uh, it's uh, it's an extraordinary episode to listen to and I, uh, I uh, strongly recommend it to, to people, particularly hear about things like the Gilded Prison, um, the uh, Ritz-Carlton and the whole story around that. We haven't got time to go yeah. into that right now. Unbelievable. But, uh, um, but, but uh, I know you I know you want to, to, to wrap up, but I, I do think it is quite amazing to sort of hear Saudis and sort of observers of MBS talk about how beloved he is amongst the youth in Saudi Arabia. And it is a young population. Yes. And he has taken these steps like letting women drive. He's taken on the Wahhabists and the religious police and he's let, you know, rappers come in and uh, American rappers come in and hold concerts. And so he is actually amongst, you know, certain portions of, of, of Saudi's younger population pretty popular and seen as as a progressive um, influence. Yeah, and a warmonger who happens to have launched a, a war in neighbouring Yemen and, uh, you know, 300,000 people are dead. Um, so it's... Uh, and, yeah. and a few other things. Yeah, and many, many other things. That's right. Um, speaking of women, you you make the point that uh, it, it's a difficult thing to find women leaders. I mean, that speaks to the whole, uh, you know, much broader issue, of course. Um, but one of them is Giorgia Maloney, the, uh, the new leader in Italy. Uh, she hasn't been there very long. She's the leader of Fratelli d'Italia uh, or the uh, Brothers of Italy. Um, and she's been a Mussolini enthusiast in the past. Uh, there's a very interesting debate that you have with uh, the people you talk to on on that particular program about what that means, about whether that represents a sort of a crypto-fascist uh, background or whether she's disowned that. Uh, she's a really fascinating character and Italian politics, of course, always interesting, but um, um, she's the first female leader of that country. And what is it about the third largest uh, economy in Europe? Yeah, uh, one of the one of the G seven yeah. nations. It's a it's a very important country, uh, Italy, and you know there is this, I suppose, quite serious debate about whether it has elected a fascist leader. Um, I think that's. I think we we really unpack what that means and what that question even means in the episode because Italy has such a, a complex. Um, history with fascism, the way in which it's reckoned with its, particularly its World War II history, is quite different to mm. what, say, Germany has done in the in the aftermath. Um, and you know, I think also the term fascism has has been so widely used in even in Western politics today, and some would argue quite inaccurately, actually. Um, that that it it becomes a really fascinating discussion about um, whether it's appropriate to apply that label to someone that has, as you say in the past, expressed some admiration for Mussolini, but uh, has disavowed the concept of fascism, does not seem to be wanting to undermine Italy as a democracy itself, um, but does take some fairly hardline positions on things like um, same-sex marriage or immigration, or a lot of the kind of you know woke left issues to 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 use a term. 
Yeah, that's right. There's a really good discussion that occurs in that podcast, and one of the, one of the people you have on there, Barbara, Sarah, who I understand is a, a friend of yours, someone you've known for some time, and she's written a book called Fascism in the Family, and it and she openly discusses the the, the, the book is about um, uh, her. I think it was a grandfather who was the mayor of a um, of a, a fairly significant industrial town in Sardinia um, during the Mussolini years, and. Um, she makes a really interesting point. She makes a number of very interesting points about that that matter you were just discussing, what constitutes fascism, how it is sort of viewed differently in Italy uh, and and from from the way it's understood in most other Western discussions, which tend to conflate it with Nazism, for example, German Nazism. But um, I thought it was fascinating when she made the point that she she would lose patience with the naivety. And this goes back to something I suppose we were saying right at the start. She would lose patience with the naivety of um, of people, particularly in Western countries, when she would say at a dinner party or somewhere that her grandfather was, was a fascist and there would be this kind of, um, you know, sort of people amazed and, and, and sometimes turning away and uh, sort of appalled as, as if, and I think the point she's trying to make is that how did they think fascism came about? And surely they imagined there were actually quite a few people involved, a lot of people supporting it. Yeah, and and I think um, I think she has a great way of linking that past with Italy's you know present day politics. And I suppose that's the point: is uh, you know, in different political circumstances, we can choose leaders or parties that might be quite surprising. Mm. You know, we see that here in Australia as well. And, you know, it was actually really fascinating hearing um, one of the people in the episode who's an Italian professor of international studies who works at a university in Australia and his sort of um, shock and and um, kind of confusion at being confronted by students in his own university lectures saying things like, oh, well, Tony Abbott's a fascist and him saying, well, hang on, do you even know what a, a fascist is? He's not a... This is not what fascism is, um, and I, I, I think we it, it's a great episode because it's such a lively and I think um, instructive conversation about this term that we do tend to probably overuse a bit these days. Yes, well, I suppose it's just seen in a quite linear sense of, of, a, of an extreme form of right wingness and um, and and you know like. Arch conservatism is is actually quite different from fascism, but uh, yeah. we, we tend to simplify these things in a lot of these discussions, or at least a number of people do. It, it's used to undermine, I think, people's political positions quite frequently. Mm. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not all that helpful if we're trying to actually understand what the different policy positions are. Uh, perhaps, perhaps using that kind of hyperbole doesn't serve us all that well because it doesn't really encourage us to think about what's behind the the idea. Yeah, and to understand the historical lessons, you know, the things that uh, that took place that led to the rise of fascism in Europe for example mm. and and yeah. uh, and what what you know what the actual model that was being pursued was. It was a very yeah. specific model of the of uh, of the state. Um and uh not not the same sort of thing, but you know, your point about uh the the, the circumstances can throw up really interesting leaders. And it occurred to me as you said that that it was really Labor voters, for example, who elected Pauline Hanson in Oxley mm. in uh, 1996. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a vast exodus of Labor voters um, 
So the circumstances in that case, sort of industrial dislocation, unemployment, mm. intergenerational unemployment, feeling left behind, uh, resenting all the talk about globalism and, uh, and multiculturalism and so forth, all the sort of backlash against that. And there's an element yeah. of that, it seems to me, in, um, in Fratelli d'Italia as well. Uh, 100%. I mean, I think even one of the later episodes, which hasn't been released yet, is on Rishi Sunak, the new British Prime Minister. And one of, I think, the most fascinating things about his rise, obviously he's not been elected by by the public through a general election. He's, he's a replacement Prime Minister after a replacement Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, he is held in power uh, in part because Boris Johnson was able to crash through that so-called red wall in the north and the middle of England and secure all of these traditionally Labor voting former industrial electorates off the back of Brexit, which was this kind of nationalist cry. Mm, yeah. Um, and Take back control, all that stuff. Take back control. Mm. But what's really interesting, right, is that Rishi um, was a Brexiteer from the outset um, he was always part of the Leave campaign, and yet his background is as a Goldman Sachs banker. He is possibly the wealthiest British Prime Minister ever. His partner is the daughter of the Indian billionaire that owns Infosys. He is his own wealth in his own right as well. He is the sort of um, archetypal Davos man. He would yeah. um, sit incredibly comfortably in those sort of rooms and suites in Davos, and yet at this year's Davos, he was nowhere near it. The Labor leader, Keir Starmer, was there trying to mix it with the business elite to show that that a new Labor government in Britain would be pro-business. Meanwhile, Rishi's at home trying to prove his own sort of working class bona fides and remind everyone that for a brief summer during his university days, he'd worked in an Indian takeaway <laughs> restaurant. Um, so it is really interesting that different voting demographics can throw up these leaders at different times. No one actually voted for Liz Truss as Prime Minister. No one actually voted for Rishi Sunak, yet this is where we're at. And I should flag for you because I think you will probably enjoy this. On that episode, um, Sir Craig Oliver uh, is is with us. He was David Cameron's um, sort of chief spin doctor for a time and then went on to, to run the the obviously unsuccessful Remain campaign during the Brexit referendum. Um, he joins us, as does George Brandis, who's just returned from being Australia's High Commissioner to London. Now, George Brandis got to know Boris and Liz Truss pretty well because he was obviously there as they were trying to negotiate this free trade agreement with Australia, which came about as a result of Brexit and was one of the promises that Boris made. You know, there'd be this global Britain that would have all these incredible trade deals with other nations that they couldn't do, of course, because they were members of the European Union. Which turns out to be um, pretty insignificant, I might just say. Yeah, they certainly haven't landed as many of those as they well, and they're just the, the ones with New Zealand and Australia together constitute about three or four percent of traders. In, yeah. you know, at the outside, it's it, it is a very big trading block to to have walked away from. It is, um, but what is sort of. I, I still can't quite wrap my head about it around it, but two two people from the conservative side of politics, both I think from the from the fairly um, liberal wing of their parties, trying to get to the bottom of whether 
Brexit or COVID or a combination of the two are the real reasons for the total mess that the UK now finds itself in and whether Liz Truss was the root of the worst of the problems or Rishi is the answer. Sir Craig Oliver and George Brandis have an all-time amazing argument that <laughs> that is one to is look worth, forward to. Is worth is worth the price of the ticket on its own. Oh. I promise. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's one to look forward to. Hamish McDonald, thanks for being on Democracy Sausage. My absolute pleasure. Um, have a great day. It's really lovely to chat. Mark. Yes, uh, great to talk to you. And congratulations on this series. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to it. And um, uh, we'll uh, see what you come up with next. That's Democracy Sausage for this week from Australian National University. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.